This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Our text this morning is from Genesis 49, verses 1 through 12. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Thank you, Janelle. Thank you, worship team. Welcome this morning, Antioch. Good to see a full house on a rainy blustery day. Uh, I had planned a briefer sermon today because we are going to recognize our graduates and also Mark Harris was going to give us a report for South Africa, but sadly Mark is not feeling well today, so we will postpone his report until the 18th of June, but we'll still have a brief message today. And every, everybody said, okay. You may have noticed as Janelle read that Jacob had called his sons together. It's a final time for Jacob to, to gather his sons one last time and to give a blessing over each one. Look at the verbs he uses. He says, gather, come together, boys. Assemble means the same thing, but I want you to be tight here. I'm going to speak to you. And then he says, listen. <laughs> he says, listen, sons of Jacob, listen. And then he says it again, don't miss this. Sons of Israel, listen to me. What Jacob will speak to his sons, each in turn, will have two characteristics. You've probably noticed this as you looked at the passage this week. On the one hand, he will speak to his sons about things he has observed in their lives. His words were based on their previous actions, their own character, his observation of who they really are as people, as men. On the other hand, he's going to go beyond this, especially for Judah, into prophecy. Now, in some cases, the first three 
to warn of consequences for sins. That will be passed on from generation to generation. We'll talk about that in, uh, not in depth, but in brief. But in others to give encouragement, to Judah to give encouragement and, and strength to carry on so that he might finish well, that he might run the race, right? He might fight the good fight and he might finish. Some of you who have run longer races have no doubt seen people standing on the sidewalks who are not running in those long races, right, John? And they're holding up posters to encourage you, right? Like this one. Like this one. If I see you collapse, I'll pause your garment. How sweet. This is one of my favorites. Just look at this kid's face. Right? Or the one at a marathon when I saw the sign, it said, the Kenyans finished an hour ago. Thanks a lot. When I was in the most pain of my race, I passed a guy, I passed a guy who was holding up a sign, and it said, is that all you've got? But the best sign I saw was the one that said, you are exactly 0.3 miles from the finish line. <laughs> yes, that was, that was a sight for sore legs. But that, the better sign, even better than that, was the one that I ran under, and it said what? Finish, right. Well, Jacob's holding up signs for his, his sons, and particularly for, for Judah, and some of the others who are going to come after him, we'll talk about them next week, Lord willing, who, who are going to finish the race in a good way. Right? And he's saying, hey, don't quit. Don't give up. You're almost there. And you've got an important job to do. Well, let's look at this passage then under these three points. Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they're a team. And, and they're going to receive serious signs of sadness and rebuke. And finally, we'll look at Judah, encouraging signs of hope and victory. So first, Judah. Jacob starts with praise for his firstborn. It's praise. It's praise for what you're supposed to be. Reuben, you're my might. You're my strength. You're first in dignity. You're first in power. But what an ignominious end to such a promising beginning. What he could have been, what he should have been, is not going to come to pass because of his sin. He says, Reuben, you are unstable as water, I like this quote by Kinder. It would be hard to find a more withering contrast between a man and his calling. I don't want to be that man to you or that woman. Reuben, you are unstable as water. And the word there for unstable doesn't just mean not predictable, not, not able to stand, but it also can mean destructive, like typhoons. Water can, can kill people, right? And Reuben, you're that man. You're unstable as, as water. You remember the story? He said, you'll no longer have the rights of a firstborn. Why? You remember the story from Genesis 35? And, and what possibly could have been, we don't know this for sure, but what possibly could have been a power play by Reuben, the firstborn, to take the patriarchy from his father, Jacob, to assume his position, to take over the house? Because he went into Bilhah, who was a wife of Jacob. She was a, a concubine but she became a wife and she was also the servant of Rachel Jacob's favorite wife who had just died and so Reuben makes a power play and as a result of that he is going to be judged it's interesting in chapter 35 Moses did not comment on it and neither did Jacob 
But it's clear this sin has not been overlooked by the father or by the father. It's not going to be overlooked. The leadership that could have been Reuben's was lost because of his sinful actions. Again, Kidner writes, Reuben was a man of ungoverned impulse. Here's a warning for all of us. We must have governors led by the Holy Spirit who, who, that will guide us and lead us into righteousness and away from sinfulness. And Reuben did not do that. You know, it's interesting. If you follow the people from Reuben, we're not going to do that. But if you look through the Old Testament at the people who came from the tribe of Reuben, they, they're unstable. They're unstable as water. They're unpredictable. They, they lack courage. They lack conviction. I'll just give you one story. In Judges chapter 5, remember when Deborah led the army because Barak would not lead the army. Deborah led the army against Sisera in Judges chapter 5. This sentence is referred to twice. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Judges, the writer of Judges says it two times. What does that mean? Among the clans of or tribes of Reuben, there was great indecisiveness. They did not join in the battle. And judgment followed. You know, I've heard it said that the roads that we drive on are littered with flat squirrels that could not make a decision. Well, you know, it's interesting. No prophet or judge or king that we know of came from the tribe of Reuben. Well, that leads to Simeon and Levi. At least Reuben's oracle started with praise, right? But for being the firstborn, but Simeon and Levi got none of that. It is all judgment. Why are these sons mentioned together? Well, Jacob makes it clear in his, in his oracle to them that these two acted together to commit perhaps one of the most heinous acts of injustice in the Old Testament. One of the most heinous sins committed by the people of God in the Old Testament was committed by these two men, the second and the third born of, of Jacob. You remember the story from chapter 34. Dinah, who was the sister of the 12 brothers, had been defiled by a man named Shechem, and the city that they came from was Shechem, a pagan city led by Shechem's father, Hamor. And after he had defiled Dinah, he took her to his house. So when Simeon and Levi found out, they schemed to pay back Shechem and the whole city of Shechem for their sins. And they deceived the men of the city to believe that, hey guys, if you will have every male in the city circumcised from the youngest to the oldest, and hey, yeah, we will give our daughters to your sons, and you can give your sons to uh, your daughters to our sons, and oh, we'll just be one big happy family. And so the people of Shechem agreed to that. And you remember what happened on the third day when the men were in the most pain that they could possibly be after the circumcision. Simeon and Levi, just the two of them, went into the city and killed every male there with a sword. They justified their massacre to their father Jacob as vengeance for Dinah being treated like a prostitute. And again, Jacob makes no comment in, in that event. And Moses does not record any editorializing in that event. But here we are years later, and Jacob, on his deathbed, he says, this is what's going to happen to you boys because of your sin. Again, ungoverned impulses for Reuben, and now anarchy and violence, to use Alan Ross's terms, are incompatible with spiritual leadership. I don't have points at the end to remind you of, but these are two of them. Ungoverned impulses 
and anarchy or violence or just getting revenge on people who've harmed you and making sure you make them pay, those are incompatible with being a spiritual man, a spiritual woman, and therefore we will not have the opportunities to lead perhaps that we would have had. So Simon's, Simeon's tribe will be later swallowed up partly into Judah's tribe, and then the rest of them will be absorbed in the northern tribes. It's interesting, if you look at Numbers chapter 1, and then you look at Numbers chapter 26, and you see where they're numbered there. That's why the book's called, now there's a lot of numbers in that book. And so in chapter 1, they're the third largest tribe, Simeon. Right? It tells you how many thousands of people are in the tribe. 35 years later, basically at the end of the wilderness wanderings, just about, they're numbered again, and they've lost 63% of their population, and Simeon's tribe is the smallest of the tribes now. They did not grow, they shrunk. Levi also will be scattered, but he will be given an honorable dispersion as a priestly tribe. So you get, kind of get the idea that Simeon and Levi were guilty, but maybe Simeon was the older brother. He said, hey, Levi, let's do this, right? And maybe Levi's punishment wasn't quite as severe. Nonetheless, they were given uh, some pretty shocking and some sad judgments. And that leads us to a little happier time here, Judah. How many remember Judah was not a good man early on, right? Who orchestrated the sale of the brother to the Ishmaelites? That would be Judah, right? Who did something despicable with his daughter-in-law, unknowing that it was his daughter-in-law, and then wanted to have his daughter-in-law burned to death, unknowing that it was Judah, the whole debacle with Judah and Tamar. But what we've seen here is that God shows his grace to all the sons of Jacob, but none receiving and acting on that grace more than Judah and Joseph. You'll see this next week. Judah, Judah today, but Joseph next week, we'll see how these two are given a, a, a wonderful blessing from the Lord. And I think it's partly because they acted on the grace that had been given to them by God and they grew as a result. They matured as a result. We'll see that these two have blessings that are much longer and eloquent than any of the others. But the prophecy for Judah will far outdistance the blessing of Joseph. Let's look at the ways Jacob describes Judah. First, in verse 8, he says, Your brothers will praise you. Now, this, of course, is a play on Judah's name. Remember, it literally means he will be praised. You remember the story when Leah was trying to please her husband, Jacob. She wasn't his first choice right? Remember that? He didn't love her like he loved Rachel. And so she was trying to please him. And she had three sons, one after another, right? Reuben, and then, and then Simeon, and then Levi. And each time after each son was born, she said, oh, maybe now I'll find favor. Maybe now my husband will love me. It's a sad story. But then she has Judah, the fourth son. And it's like she just looks at heaven and says, I'll praise you anyway, Lord. I'll just praise you. Forget, forget this guy. Maybe he'll never love me, but I know you love me, and you've blessed me, and I will praise your name. And so she names her son to reflect her inward uh, delight in the Lord. His name is, or he will be praised. And so Jacob plays on that, and then he, he says to Judah, 
that his brothers will praise him and they will even bow down to him because he will triumph over his enemies. Now think of that. This is the, the tribe is in Egypt. They will be in Egypt for 430 years through slavery. When will the tribe of Judah rise up and triumph over their enemies? When will that come to pass? Well, we'll see the culmination of that, at least the first culmination, but not the greatest, in David, who came from the tribe of Judah. King David came from the tribe of Judah. And he will become the king who conquers the enemies of Israel. And he will become the man after God's own heart that we talk about in Acts records. But the final and the greatest king from the tribe of Judah will far exceed David's life and legacy. And we see that prophesied here by Jacob thousands of years ago. In fact, it starts here. Second in verse 9, he says, Judah is a lion's cub. What does that mean? It means he's mighty. He's regal. He's a lion's cub, right? And we know the Spirit of God is speaking through Jacob here because Judah is the lion of the tribes. He's the lion of the 12 tribes, right? He's the greatest of the 12 tribes. In fact, Balaam in Numbers will use this imagery when prophesying about Israel. He says, God brings him... Judah, out of Egypt, and his for him like the horns of the wild ox. He shall eat up the nations, his adversaries, and shall break their bones in pieces and pierce them through with arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion and like a lioness. Who will rouse him up? Blessed are those who bless you and cursed are those who curse you. So when Jacob says, you are the lion's cub, well, a lion's cub goes out from the den, seizes his prey, drags it back to the den, and then crouches over the prey and devours it. Okay, so let's think about that. Judah is mighty in battle, and again, the king in the Old Testament who best fits that image in is David. Answer me this. If Judah is the lion of the tribes, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? And everybody said, Jesus. Look at Revelation 5.5. 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more, behold, the lion... Of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seals. But here's a question for you. Based on this prophecy, based on Revelation 5, what is even more powerful than a lion? A lamb that has been slain. Revelation 5, 6, the noblest son of the tribe of Judah is fitly styled the lion of that tribe, but the New Testament sees him displaying a finer strength than that of a lion's, Kidner writes. And this comes from Revelation 5, 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Yes, Jesus' greatest act, the lion of the tribe of Judah, was not to come as a lion the first time, but to come as a lamb to be slaughtered. Guess what? When he comes back, he's coming as a lion the conquering king will come back and take what is his and third in verse 10 we see this the scepter shall not depart from judah now remember ephraim is really the one who's given the birthright that belonged to reuben we saw that last week last week when when jacob says hey your sons ephraim and and manasseh they're mine i'm adopting them and they're taking the place 
of Reuben and Simeon, really as the first and second born. So Ephraim is seen in the Old Testament as having the birthright that belonged to Reuben, but God chose Judah to carry the greater blessing. Look at what Asaph wrote in Psalm 78. He, God, rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built this sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose Judah, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. And there are other verses we could look at, but we're not going to take the time. But you can study that on your own, and you can see how Ephraim was replaced by Judah as being the one who would bring forth uh, the greatest blessing. So David was Judah's king, but Jesus, as prophesied here, is the king of kings. The prophecy of Judah for the time to come is the establishment of Israel as a nation. People will have their earthly king through Judah, right? The best kings came from Judah, right? Not the northern tribes, but the tribe, the, the nation of Judah, the best kings, the most godly kings came there, through there. But there will come a time when there's no earthly king. It's not necessary anymore. It's not needed. It's not even wanted. If you read the book of Ezekiel, he's prophesying to the people of God after the Babylonian uh, exile, the people of God have been taken into Babylon, right? And what happens there is the Babylonians say, oh, you've had kings. Okay, we'll raise up a puppet king. This guy, Zedekiah, he'll be your king to just keep you in order. But you're, you're, you belong to me. You, know, you belong to Babylon. And it's interesting. Ezekiel says this, to, presumably to Zedekiah. Thus says the Lord God, Zedekiah, remove the turban, take off the crown. Things shall not remain as they are. Exalt that which is low and bring low that which is exalted. So what's happening here is that God is saying, King, kings for Israel, that's, that's a thing of the past, right? There's going to be a king for Israel. There's going to be a king for all of God's people. But that time is not yet. So finally, this prophecy over Judah goes beyond the earthly ministry of Jesus to the time of his return. The language used here, just look at the language again. He says, uh, binding his his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He's washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. The language here, first of all, it reminds us of the first miracle Jesus performed at Cana of Galilee when he did what? He turned 120 gallons of water into wine to save the wedding party from embarrassment and it was the best wine that people had ever tasted in their lives. But when his mother asked him to do it, what did Jesus say? Why are you asking me this? My hour has not yet come. But out of deference to his mother and to perform his first miracle, he does this. But this is a beautiful picture because what happens when his hour does come? Gloria in excelsis Deo, we see Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. We see him washing his garments in the wine of his blood as Jacob prophesies here. We see the king become the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then we see the future. 
the return of the king, the glorious day we long for. The imagery here in verse 12 of wine and milk are used to describe the, the age that will never end and will be marked by abundance and joy and peace. And we're waiting for that, the glory of God. That's what we long for. That's what Jesus died for and was raised again for, for our sake, that we might be with him forever. So all of that, Jacob, by the Spirit of God moving in him, is prophesying over this son, Judah, of the son of Judah, who will be the lion, the, the king of kings, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that you know the end from the beginning. And as Janelle prayed, you planned it all out. Your plan is perfect. Your plan cannot be interrupted, even by the sins of men and women. We don't interrupt your perfect plan. And Father, we're thankful that we've seen the grace of God acting. People like Judah and Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and and those who received the grace and then appropriated that grace to walk out their lives, not in anarchy and destruction and bringing vengeance and holding grudges and being unforgiving and hating people who hate them, but by receiving the grace of God that's at work through the Spirit of God in the lives of those who belong to Jesus and laying down our lives for you and for our brothers and sisters. Lord, thank you that you're making us more and more day by day into those people. Continue that work and help our hearts to be continually turned towards you. When we sin, when we all do, every day, that we might be quick to turn to you and thank you for your forgiveness and confess our sins. Thank you for this church. Thank you for these people that have gathered today because they love you, but mostly they love us, each other, but mostly because they love you. Have your way the rest of our service and our meal together later. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.